Of the seven churches Jesus wrote epistles to in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the church at Laodicea was in the worst shape of all. They were in such bad shape that Jesus said they literally made him want to vomit. What happened to make the church be in this horrible situation? And how does that affect us today? Because prophetically speaking, our current age is the age of Laodicea. We'll talk about that on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, podcasts, and video. And we are nearing the end of our look at the seven letters to seven churches or Revelation chapters two and three because we are on church number seven, the church at Laodicea, the so-called lukewarm church. So let's just begin our examination of this church by simply reading the passage. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Wow, this is a pretty harsh letter. Jesus has some very, very harsh things to say. You can almost hear the anger and frustration in, in, in his voice, as it were, just in his writing. So, and by the way, it's going to get even more harsh when, when we do the verse-by-verse -verse examination of this, when we break down the verses. But before we do that, let's just start, as we always do, by looking at the historical aspect. Let's just look at the city, the Church of Laodicea, because these are actual churches that existed in uh, ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and Laodicea was one of those churches, and, and one of those cities, rather. So what was the city of Laodicea like? Well, Laodicea was actually a, a pretty wealthy and well-to-do um, area, a well-to-do city. And like some of the other well-to-do cities, like Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos, they either had a product or service or situation that, that gave them wealth. For example, in Ephesus, they were wealthy because they had a large port where ships could go in and out, and they did a lot of trading. Smyrna also had, had a large port like Ephesus, and they also had um, their their product, which was myrrh, which uh, they were they were renowned for, and they sold that back and forth. Pergamus was wealthy because they were in the corridors of power. So a lot of very wealthy, powerful Romans went in and out of Pergamus. Uh, Laodicea was wealthy because they had a couple of, of products that were they were renowned for. Well, one of those products was a very luxurious, lustrous, shiny uh, black wool that came from a special rare breed of black sheep that was that was that were bred in Laodicea. And the garments that were made from this black wool from these sheep, again, it was very shiny, very luxurious, very 
very rich in its appointments. So, and because it was rare, it was, it was very expensive. And it was a status symbol for wealthy people to own garments made of this material. And for the Laodiceans themselves, they could get it at a discount because they were local. They, you know, they had the sheep, them, the sheep themselves, so they didn't have to pay, you know, the the regular excises on the uh, that foreigners would have to pay. So a lot of Laodiceans, whether they were wealthy or not, would wear clothing made of this black wool as a status symbol, even though they may not have been wealthy. It was just their. It was it was like designer clothing. So some people who are not necessarily rich will wear designer clothing because it just makes them look wealthy. It was a status symbol, and they were known for that. Uh, the other thing that Laodicea was known for were were uh, medicinal products, particularly an eye salve. You know, people had you know a lot of eye problems back then, and because of the area Laodicea was in, they had a poultice was a poultice that was made from clay and herbs that they would put on the eyes of people who had eye problems that it and it would it would have it had medicinal properties that would help them see better so those are the two things Laodicea was known for this uh, black wool and this um, eye salve that helped people see better and so that's how they gained their wealth and we'll see Jesus addresses both of those things in the letter um, another thing about Laodicea the, the, the church at Laodicea we we know a little bit about them very little actually because they are mentioned briefly in the letter of to of Paul to the Colossians and that's really the only place other than the book of Revelation where we hear about Laodicea and Paul simply said that the Colossian church should share this uh, the, the epistle to that Paul wrote to them with the the Laodiceans which means whichever issues whatever issues the Colossians had the uh, Laodiceans had the same issues and uh, what was the issue that the Colossians had had. Well, if you read the book of Colossians, you will find that Paul keeps hammering away at the idea that they kept mixing. They, they would never choose Christ alone. They would choose Jesus plus other stuff. They would choose Jesus plus philosophy. They were very much entangled in the philosophies of the world. They would try to mix Jesus together with their own carnality. They would try to mix Jesus together with their other spiritual worship. So they would never just make a hard choice that we want Jesus alone. They wanted Jesus plus something else. They always, they would never take a hard stand on their faith. They were, they were worldly and they wanted to be a part of the world. And that was obviously the same thing that the uh, church of Laodicea had a problem with, that they would never actually say, we're just for Jesus and Jesus alone. It was always, well, Jesus plus our philosophy, plus our worldliness, plus all these different things we would hear. In fact, he's, Paul says specifically in Colossians that they would, that the Colossians were easily persuaded by anyone who came in with any sort of spiritual philosophy or carnal philosophy, they they would just they would never stick to their guns. They were just they didn't take a stand. They would just go with the flow with whatever happened. If someone would bring in a new piece of doctrine, if they liked it, they would just kind of flow that way. They were not strong on doctrine. They were pretty much the opposite of the church at Ephesus. And of course, Laodicea would obviously have the same problem since Paul uh, told the Colossians to share the letter with the Laodicean church. Oh, one last thing about the city of Laodicea that's interesting is where they were located. They were at sort of the midpoint and height between two cities that that flanked them to the north and south. To the north of Laodicea, there was a, a city called Heropolis, which was at a high elevation. And Heropolis was known for their hot medicinal, their hot uh, mineral springs. So they had you know springs coming up from the ground that would, that would have really hot mineral water. And though when it would come up, it would flow downhill, and it would get all the way to the bottom of of, of the the bottom lowest elevation, which was the city of Colossae, where the Colossians were. And by the time that hot water from Heropolis got down 
to Colossae, it would cool down to the point where it was cool. So you had hot water in Heropolis and you had cold water, cold mineral water in in, Col in Colossae. And so those both were good for you. Hot mineral water is good for you to bathe in, it's medicinal. And of course, cold water is good for you, it's refreshing and, and things like that. But Laodicea was at the middle elevation. So by the time the water from Heropolis got to Laodicea, it was not hot anymore, but it wasn't cold either. It was actually lukewarm. It was just warm water. And warm mineral water is an aminic. What an aminic is, that's something that if you drink it, it will make you throw up. It makes you vomit. It's something that uh, uh, doctors then and even now give to people who've swallowed poison because it causes you your body to regurgitate the poison so anything that goes so if you ingest something bad you take some more mineral water and you will you'll will, you will vomit it back up and that's where Laodicea was and of course Jesus uses that play on words as we'll see fairly soon and the last thing about Laodicea is what the actual city means I mean, the, the name of the city means of course Jesus every single one of these cities have has a meaning to it because it's so layered and Jesus just packs so much information into these letters that every single aspect of them is meaningful including the names of the city and the name of the city of Laodicea, when you break it down, there's there's a Leo Lae, which means the people is where we get the word laity. And so we you know we call a lay person a layman, it's just a regular person. And then uh, Deosia, which means to rule over. So Laodicea means the laity, the people are ruling. So Laodicea means the rule of the people as opposed to the rule of an authority figure. In Laodicea, the people decide what's right or wrong, what's good or bad, not the authority, and in this case, not God. All right, so with that history out of the way, let's just, just start breaking down the verses in this letter, starting at verse 14 of chapter 3. And to the angel, or the messenger, pastor, of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, as we know from following these uh, seven letters so far that Jesus begins them all with a different title of himself that is germane to the issues that these churches are experiencing. So Jesus starts by calling himself calling himself the Amen. Amen means true. It means the truth. When you say Amen at the end of the, of the prayer, you're saying, you know, this is valid. This is truth that I'm saying to you. So whatever's going on with the church of Laodicea, they need to know what hard truth is. Truth is not manageable. When people say, oh, you have your truth, I have my truth. That is utterly ridiculous. There is no subjective truth. Truth is what it is. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. That is a true fact. There is That is non-negotiable. You can't say, well, for me, the sun rises in the north and sets in the east. No, <laughs> you may believe that, but that's not truth because you believe it. Truth is non-negotiable. And he says that Jesus calls himself the faithful and true witness. So again, he's talking about uh, truthfulness. Um, faithful and true means, again, you are a solid witness. When you're faithful and true, you saw something for the way it is. There's no negotiating. There's no back and forth. And lastly, he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Now, that doesn't mean he's a created being. Beginning means he's the source, the source of the creation of God. And I, I find that interesting because, again, something with, that's no wiggle room as far as creation is concerned there is, and we'll get to this when we get to the the prophetic aspect. In our age, as far as what creation is, what, what creation is concerned, the the dominant worldview is that of evolution. 
that we evolved that you know there was a big bang and then a hundred trillion beneficial accidents happened in a row <laughs> resulting in life on earth and all these basically we're, we're the result of a hundred trillion beneficial accidents which is absolutely ridiculous you you'd be hard-pressed to find three beneficial accidents happening in a row let alone trillions which would which is what would be required in order for evolution to be true which is one of the many 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 reasons why evolution is the most ludicrous utterly asinine theory that's ever been perpetrated on so-called science it is not science it's anti-science and i'm not gonna get on a rant for on this i've talked about it before if you want to study what i've said what i've written about or talked about with evolution there is a evolution versus creation um, category in the right navigation bar where i do a three or four episodes where i show how evolution is a completely unscientific not based on the bible not because god says so but simply based on logic reason and science it's, it's ridiculous but that is the dominant cultural paradigm uh, of this age it is not allowed to be questioned you cannot go to school and question evolution you cannot go anywhere even socially and question it otherwise you're, you'll basically be hammered into submission by society and culture but jesus says specifically he is the beginning of the creation of god and again this is something that the church of laodicea needs needs to know and needs, needs to be emphasized to them which is why he stated it that way i right, keep going to verse 15 i know your works jesus always knows our works and that's either good or bad depending on what your works are that you are neither cold nor hot i could wish that you were cold or hot but then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot i will vomit you out of my mouth the bottom line excuse me the bottom line message here is that this church these people in this church will not take a stand they will they will need to be cold nor hot hot would be if you're if you're righteous if you're going the right way jesus god he always claims he's a consuming fire fire is always an aspect fire and light are aspects of god god jesus is light god is like he's a judgment he's a, a judging consuming fire so if you're hot then it means you're closer to god to righteousness cold on the other hand is the opposite Cold is the absence of heat. It is evil. Jesus says, I, obviously he wishes they were hot. He wishes they were on fire for him. He, he wishes they were the consuming fire, reflecting the consuming fire of God and Jesus. And he could obviously bless them, but he, he'd rather they actually go the opposite and be evil than be what they are. Why? Because if you, if you are either hot or cold, Jesus can interact with you. God can do something with you. If you are hot, if you are doing the right thing, if you're being righteous, God can encourage you. He can reward you. He can encourage you to keep going that way. On the other hand, if you're cold, if you are going in the evil direction, he can judge you. He can bring conviction upon you through the Holy Spirit and turn you around. But if you won't take a stand, if you won't go warm, if you won't go hot or cold, if you won't be good or evil, if you just want to be sitting right there in the middle where you won't take a stand, God can't interact with you. How can he can't bless you or curse you because you haven't made a decision. You haven't said, I'm going to be good or I'm going to be evil. You just want to be right there in the middle. And Jesus, what does Jesus say? He says, because you are neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. It sounds like Jesus would rather you be evil than be lukewarm. He would rather you go in the wrong direction than not make a move at all. If you're just sitting there fat and happy and comfortable, you are not in God's will. Either way, he can't do anything with you. He cannot correct you and he cannot bless you. You are worthless to him. Jesus says you make him sick if all you want to do is just sit there like a lump. And that is worst of all. But what is the reason for their lukewarmness, their their inability, their refusal, their refusal to take a stand? Verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing 
and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. This church is one of the two that had a completely wrong impression of who they were. The other church was Sardis. They, they thought they were alive. It says in, 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 uh, the, in the letter to Sardis, you have a name that you live, but you were dead. They thought they were alive, but they were actually dead. Laodicea, they think they're rich, but they're actually poor. Why? Because they are only looking at their material comfort. They were a wealthy city. They had the wool, the black wool. They had the, the eye salve, the postus for eyes. They thought, hey, we're rich and we need, they said, we are in need of nothing. But they were actually spiritually wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. This is the worst situation that this church could possibly be in because, and here's why. It's nothing wrong with having money. It's nothing wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong with having goods and being successful. That's not Jesus' problem with them. His problem with them was they said they have need of nothing. And if you don't think you need anything, then again, God can't interact with you. God does not just want us to, to be on this earth just sitting around fat and happy and not growing. The reason that we're on this earth is to grow. God does not want us to be static. He wants us to grow in righteousness towards him. And when we're growing in righteousness towards him, he can encourage us. And if we're going the wrong way, he can he can, he can can interact with us and correct us. But again, if we think, you know what, I'm fine. I don't need you, God. I'm just going to sit here and just be nice and fat and happy and not, not go in any direction at all. He can't do anything with us. We are, again, worthless to him. And Jesus says it sickens him because of the fact because they are spiritually not growing again again materially they were wealthy spiritually they had no growth and, be, and because they were not growing they if you're not you're, you're either growing or you are getting worse and because they were getting worse and not they didn't realize that spiritually they were wretched miserable poor blind and naked right uh, verse 18 Jesus gives the admonition. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. So Jesus is juxtapositioning their physical situation with spiritual. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold, not the gold that you get from selling your goods, but spiritual gold that's been refined in the fire. That When gold is refined, that means all the impurities are, are burned away. So he says, you know, get spiritual wealth from me that is devoid of all of the impurities of, of your carnal lives, that you may really be rich and white garments that you may be clothed. And again, he's making a play on words to the black garments that they were so known for. And white garments are actually righteous. It's an idiom for righteousness. Again, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. So they thought they were clothed in these wonderful garments, but they were actually naked. And naked means they were exposed. They they were not covered. And they they were, they were they, that, that's a, an idiom of shame. And to anoint your eyes, continue to read, Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And again, it's a play on their their medicinal eye uh, poultice that that they use. He's saying he's saying that even though they were known for being able to help people see, they were blind. They could not see. They didn't see their own situation. They misread it. They thought again they were rich and comfortable when in fact they were wretched and poor and yeah and miserable. Verse nineteen: As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So even though he's, he is telling this church that they are in a bad shape, he still loves them. He's If he did not love them, he would not be rebuking them in the harsh terms that he is. He's, he's rebuking them and chastening them because he wants to bring them back into the fold. He wants them to be his true church. And he wants the same for us. Oh yeah, therefore be zealous and repent. 
You know, stop being lukewarm. Being zealous means you're going in a, in, in a certain direction. Just go in a direction. Stop sitting around, not wanting to move. Be zealous for something and repent of your complacency and, and turn around. Uh, verse 20. This is if when you after I finish with this verse, this is going to knock you, your socks off. This is some amazing stuff. 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, I have growing up as a Christian, I've heard that verse many times as, at the altar call when, at the end of church. When they're trying to get people to come up and either join the church or accept Jesus as their savior, they say, behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's an invitation. And it's valid. I'm not going to say it's an invalid use of this verse. But if when you read it in context, it's actually a scathing condemnation of this church. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. Where is Jesus in relationship to this church? He is knocking on the door of this church. He's not in the church. Jesus is outside of the church, knocking, asking them to let him in. He's, Jesus is not even a part of this church. And his message is not to the church. He says, if anyone, if any individual hears my voice and opens it, I will come in. So he's not even pleading to this church. The church of Laodicea is a, is a lost cause as an institution. He is not, He's on the outside saying, hey, you guys want to let me into this church that, you know, here... Uh, hey, hi, I'm Jesus. I'm the person you're supposed to be worshiping. Can I come in? No? Well, okay, if any one of you in this church hears me and wants to be with me, come on out. So he's not even making a plea to the church. He is making a plea to any individual who happens to be in the church. That is truly a sad state of affairs. So let's look at the, the other three levels. And since um, it's pretty clear that the Laodicean age mirrors or the Laodicean church mirrors our current church or current postmodern church. We're just going to start with that prophetic point of view, wherein we've looked at the idea that these seven churches, these letters to the seven churches in, in the order in which they were written, uh, basically lay out the history of the church in advance. And this in Laodicea being the last church would obviously be our, our current church, excuse me. And the, the thing with the Laodiceans is that they were cowards. That's what it really boils down to. Being lukewarm and not taking a stand means not taking a risk. They valued their prosperity so much they didn't want to risk losing it by not pursuing good or evil. They didn't pursue either by not moving in any direction at all. They, they just they eliminated any kind of risk. That, that's cowardly. They didn't want to take any stand. They figured they could just preserve what they had by not moving, by being still. You're not going to gain. You're not going to lose. But the truth is they actually did lose. And because, you know, because of what Jesus said about them. They lived in fear, and fear is antithetical to love. They had no true faith, they had no true love, and no real intentions. Frankly, this church is worthless, and sadly, that is where we are. And again, that's, that is our current, quote-unquote, postmodern church. So how do we get here? The previous church before Laodicea was Philadelphia, which was the best church of all. This was a missionary church, prophetically speaking. This was a church of the Great Awakenings, these amazing spiritual events that, that launched missionary crusades all over the world and resulted in the salvation of millions of people and even and, and inspired the creation and prosperity of, of America, the nation of that in, in which we currently live, in which I currently live. So how did the church go from the Great Awakenings of, of the Philadelphian church, again, easily the darling of all the churches, to the most despised and sickening and disgusting, in Jesus' eyes, the most disgusting church of all? Well, the thing is, the church became a victim of its own success. Again, as I just stated, the freedom and liberty of the Great Awakenings led to tremendous prosperity and abundance. 
and in its abundance, the Western church became comfortable, lazy, and stagnant. The church forgot that their prosperity was an effect of their righteousness. They began to think it was the cause. They, be, they measured their righteousness by how much power, influence, and largesse they possessed in the world. And the church began to judge itself by the world's standards. And those standards are all material, not spiritual. God, Jesus, they are not focused on the material. The most important thing to our Heavenly Father is our spiritual growth, our spiritual prosperity. He has made that clear over and over again throughout the Bible. And when people choose stuff, material stuff over God, it always ends disastrously. And this church went the other direction and they measured their righteousness by their prosperity, physical prosperity. So after the, basically the, the third age great awakening, we had the world wars and the church was still a beacon of hope at that time and it was still growing. But then the 60s happened, the 1960s, the tumultuous 60s and the rise of secular humanism. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next post, when, when, I'm sorry, in the next um, episode when we kind of wrap up the, the, um, the seven letters, kind of summarize them and, and, and look at where we are today and where the church is right now and how, the, how this church age will end. But that rise of secular humanism in, in, in the 60s um, basically put the church in a position where it felt it needed another great awakening because people were falling away. Uh, the um, kids who were, who were the baby boom generation after the soldiers came back from World War II and they had money in their pockets and they wanted to start families and again, you had the, the greatest uh, boom of children in history. And by the 60s, those children were in college and in the colleges, they were being exposed to all this secular humanism and they were falling away, falling away from the church, which had kind of peaked in the 50s. And the church felt it needed another great awakening. But unlike previous revivals, this revival would not be based on spiritual courage, but on existential cowardice. With comfort, prosperity, and secular intellectualism eroding membership, the church was afraid of becoming irrelevant. And in that fear, they became willing to compromise doctrine in order to appeal to this younger, sort of hippie-ish generation that, again, was not as grounded in doctrine um, as the previous generation. So the church repackaged the message of the gospel and redefine the nature of God in a way that would appeal to the 60s hippies. This resulted in the so-called Jesus movement of the 1970s, where feelings were emphasized over knowledge. The new quote-unquote theology was the idea that God isn't a set of legalistic rules and cold doctrine, but that instead God is what you feel when you worship him, and, that you, and what you should feel is his love. Not the actual love of God, which is, a, which is based on sacrifice, um, the true definition of love is giving without the expectation of getting anything in return. Love is not a feeling, but in this, in, in the Jesus movement, love became about feelings. And, and to this day, it's the same thing. When you go to a church and people talk about love, they're just talking about what you feel, not about the true biblical definition of love. But the, the transitory emotional high of subjective human love. We've changed love from being in God's image to love in the image of secular humans where again, our idea of love is how you feel at any particular time. And it's a completely transitory and it's contradictory because you can't, if you love someone and you are angry at them, well then according to this transitory definition of love, then you no longer love them. If you, if, if you are, if you love, claim you love your spouse and love is a good feeling, then anytime you have an argument with your spouse, that means you stop loving them, which again is contradictory and, and completely subjective. 
this church focused on only the nice sayings and actions of Jesus, who they made into an idol because the real Jesus didn't just have nice messages. The real Jesus was fierce. He was passionate. We've talked about him before throughout Faith by Reason. The real Jesus wanted you to be held accountable. He wanted you to repent of your sins. If you read the actual sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, a lot of times he was not very nice, but they didn't focus on this church did not focus on that. The postmodern church does not focus on the Jesus who tells you to repent, the Jesus who talked about hell twice as much as he talked about heaven. No, they only wanted to focus on Jesus being this nice, sweet human teddy bear, and they ignored or trivialized any of his teachings about sin and judgment. Essentially, essentially they made the same fatal mistake as the Pharisees, which we uh, talked about in some earlier podcasts, where the problem with the Pharisees is that the reason that they didn't accept Jesus or, or recognize their Messiah is because they only looked at the verses about him in the Old Testament that they liked, the verses about the conquering king, and they ignored the verses about the suffering servant, which is why when Jesus first came as a suffering servant, they didn't recognize him because, again, he wasn't the Jesus they wanted. He wasn't the conquering king yet. And with this postmodern church, they only look at the nice Jesus, the, the sweet, long-haired, robe-wearing, skinny, hippie Jesus, who is basically the, the one we see um, uh, depicted in most churches, and not the Jesus who was the the one who again talked about judgment talked about sin talked about repentance and again was a complete person not just again this magic human teddy bear that the postmodern church makes him out to be the uh, the jesus movement popularized the phrase god is love as their definition of him however that's an invalid definition because it reverses causality love is an effect of who god is not the cause God's cause, God's the principles that make up God is righteousness and justice. Those are the intangible, eternal principles of God. Justice and righteousness. And an effect, an effect of that judgment and righteousness is love, that giving without the expectation of getting anything in return. Nevertheless, this movement was tremendously successful. Again, because ambiguous, touchy-feely love is far more appealing and comfortable than righteousness and justice. Preaching a God who just wants to give you a big old hug and give you anything you want is just as big grandfather in the sky in his rocking chair patting you on the head and Jesus is this wonderful guy who would just walk around patting children on the head and giving out candy and prizes to people well again that's much more appealing than uh, the the Jesus who says you know stop sinning go and sin no more stop being in adultery stop um, stop stealing stop gossiping all those things that the real Jesus said to, not to do the, the Jesus who said if you come after me you're going to have to bear your cross and follow me not appealing the Jesus who says, I'll just bless you no matter what you do, much more appealing. But the problem with any false representation of God is that it never lasts. And once the emotion of this Jesus movement started to die down in the late uh, 70s and early 80s, the leaders were ironically faced with a predicament. You see, defining God as the embodiment of human love didn't resolve the questions that the secularists of the 60s used to assault Christianity. They just shifted the question to the congregants. To the congregants, it became our responsibility to define it to the people who challenge God. And it would bring up the question, if God is love, and the love that they've defined it as is a benevolent emotion, then how can God allow suffering? How can he judge and punish sin? How can a God of, of ambiguous human love make us feel guilty about all the fun stuff we want to do, like you know, getting drunk and having promiscuous sex and lie and gossip and watch cable TV? And how, how, can, how can a loving God be intolerant of homosexuality and transsexuality and abortion. If God just loves us, then how could he judge us? How can you have both? 
And at this point, the church was given an opportunity to make a dispensational choice. A choice that could have shown whether or not this time, this church period was going to be a success or failure. They could have either repented of this God is love movement by confirming that, hey, no, the Bible is right, that God's nature is not love as a cause, it's, it's to be always a completely right and just, which demands holiness and judges sin, and the effect of that is the love, the true love of God. Or they could reject the God of the Bible and intentionally embrace our idolatry. They could go, they could go hot or cold. They could either, again, reject this ambiguous love and say, you know what, we're gonna go back to the true biblical definition of all these things and a true biblical representation of God, or we can just, you know, reject God and become a big country club. But the thing is, if they chose righteousness, they would risk their prosperity by alienating the secular world and, and weaker Christians, not to mention, you know, these new congregants that they were that they were trying to get. But if they chose to openly reject biblical doctrine, then they would risk the church's power and influence by no longer being considered a church. So which one did they choose? Man, the postmodern church made the worst decision possible, the most lukewarm decision possible. They chose neither. They rejected the idea that they even had to choose. How? By rejecting the idea that the choice even existed, they avoided the question of how to deal with the absolutes of righteousness and justice and morality by denying that those absolutes even exist. They actively avoided the tough questions about things like fornication, homosexuality, evolution, abortion, objective morality. They dodged or ignored controversial biblical issues such as eschatology, hell, Satan, sin, holiness, and salvation through Jesus alone. And you find that in postmodern churches. Well, they, they will not talk about these things. They just refuse to. In fact, uh, what I'm going to have in the show notes, I'm going to link a video or two with some of these popular postmodern preachers, one of them being Rob Bell, for example. He's, he's one of the biggest postmodern emergent church guys. And he's in an interview with a, a, thing, a guy on CNN who asks him tough questions. The interviewer asks him some tough definitive questions and instead of, you know, all he does is just dance around them. He will not address them. He refuses to take a stand. He won't, the interviewer gives him a choice. Hey, is God A or is God B? And he'll, he'll just not even answer it. He refuses to take a stand. In fact, the only biblical, quote unquote, biblical commandment that is accepted in the emergent postmodern church is thou shall not judge. The only thing that they will tell you is wrong is to judge. They won't tell you sin is wrong. They won't tell you that any of the cultural issues that are anti-biblical are wrong. They won't take a stand on that. The only thing that they care about is that you not judge anyone because as long as you're not judgmental, nobody can reject you. You can still keep everybody happy and you can keep all your congregation giving you money and keeping your mega churches growing. <sighs> Unlike the faithful and courageous church at Philadelphia, this church is driven by fear and cowardice. Again, its greatest fear is being seen as judgmental. Instead of the clear and fiery justice of God, they embrace the ambiguous, subjective morass of quote-unquote social justice. Instead of focusing on growth through righteousness and sanctification, this church obsesses over growing their congregation, building the biggest megachurch, and being seeker-friendly. So focusing their message not on growing discipleship of their current members, but getting new members in. Why? Because when you get new members in, you get more money in, you get more comfortable, you get more prosperity, and that's what this church is most concerned with comfort and prosperity and instead of preaching that the revivalist message of repentance and holiness the milk toast modern ministers spew a jesus scented pop psychology to help their audiences feel better about themselves 
turn on T- TBN and look at a Joel Osteen show. And I pick on Joel Osteen a lot because it's, he's easy to pick on. He is the epitome of someone who just gives you a feel-good message virtually devoid of anything resembling biblical truth. It's basically a Christian country club, most churches. It's sedated by its material comforts and blithely ignorant of the true spiritual of its true spiritual state and in a somnambulant fear of being irrelevant. The postmodern, lukewarm church has become a bland, toothless, trite, and inoffensive, again, religious uh, country club whose main goal is to be universally appealing and to offer a superficial Christian experience. It provides the semblance of the relief of guilt that we all have so that people can claim they go to church. So when you feel bad about doing whatever you do on Saturday night, you can can still go to church and and feel like you're doing something uh, righteous and, and, and covering your sin. But, but you never actually experienced true church. You never actually experienced the truth of God. The only real sin this church recognizes is the sin of being unpopular. The only passion exhibited by these otherwise tepid postmodern ministers is the race to see who can attract the most lukewarm congregants by presenting the most watered-down message possible. And in their effort to neuter God into something more socially acceptable, the Laodicean church committed the worst sin possible. By denying the absolutes of righteousness and justice, they deny the very nature of God. This church claims that they believe in God, but they tacitly deny he even exists. Is there any wonder that this church makes Jesus want to throw up? The postmodern church experience has been described thusly. You have a mild-mannered man standing in front of a group of mild-mannered people, teaching them how to be more mild-mannered. Disgusting. Kind of makes me want to throw up. I know what Jesus was feeling. And as I said a little earlier when I wrapped up the, the breakdown of the verse, it, it ends with, again, the most scathing commentary on the church possible by Jesus. Jesus has essentially given up on this church. It's made him so sick that he's done with it. Because where is Jesus in relationship to this church? You know, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside. He's knocking on the door, asking to be let in. Jesus is not even in this church. He is not in these postmodern churches. He's outside. His appeal is all the more tragic because he's not addressing that the church at large. He's basically given up on him. There is no call to repentance. Again, all the other churches, Jesus said, hey, repent, and or you get this, this out of the other. He doesn't even call this church to repentance. Laodicea is the only letter where Jesus does not even ask the church to repent. No, he's calling out to the individuals. He says, if, if, if anyone who is still capable of hearing my voice in this church come out to me, and and we we will be we can be together and you can be saved individually. But he's given up on this church, and I cannot think of a sadder commentary on our current church than to think that Jesus has given up on this church congregationally. Obviously, not individuals. There are still individuals who are saved, of course. There are still churches that are around. I mean, remember the last four churches will still exist. So there is still a Philadelphian spirit in in some churches. But when I'm but I, when I talk of the modern church, I'm talking about the postmodern church, which is the dominant church of our time. Jesus has given up on postmodernism because, again, he can't interact with them because they won't take a stand. He's just t- talking to us individuals. If you are a part of one of these postmodern churches that won't take a stand, that won't teach true doctrine, Jesus is knocking on the door saying, if you can hear me, if you can hear the, my true voice, come out to me. Find a church that is a true Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church that teaches the whole word of God, not just the nice parts that make you feel good. Come on out and become a part of that church and let the Holy Spirit guide you. And I want to end by just talking about our personal lives and how we can be lukewarm and how to not do it. 
we have to be willing to take a stand. And it's tough this day, these days and in this culture. I've said before that I live and have lived for the past oh, about 15 years, lived in a very, very secular, liberal part of the country. I was recruited, recruited up here for a job. And when I first, and I got my first job up here and I would you know, hang out with some of the people at work, I found that they were very, very willing to talk about their, pol their politics and their cultural ideas, mostly because they, there was no one disputing it. I mean, this, the, play, the area where I live is almost universally secular and very, very liberal. So they feel completely free to just spout off whatever they want about their, their positions because they know that no one's going to, to say anything against it. And when I heard this, these sorts of things that they would talk against God, against uh, Christianity, I had a choice. I could have said, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian. I don't appreciate what you're saying. What you're saying isn't true. Here's why it isn't true. Here's why the God of the Bible does not match up with what you're saying about him. Or I could have gone along with him and said, yeah, you know, God is, is exactly what you think he is. He's not that, it's not that great. Christianity is no good. And I could have been accepted by them, but I didn't want to do either. I didn't want to disagree with him because I, I was still a Christian and I, I'm not going to deny my faith. But I also didn't take a stand against them. I was lukewarm because I didn't want to be unpopular. I was new at the job. I was new in this area. I wanted, I wanted to, you know, gain friends and acquaintances. So instead of moving in one direction or the other, I remained lukewarm. I, I just held my tongue whenever they would talk and say bad things about Christianity. Fortunately, I, I changed and I just, I gained confidence and I decided, you know, it's more important for me to be on God's side than to be rejected by men. Because as Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the father. That verse really convicted me. And from then on, I said, you know what, I'm going to stand for what I believe in no matter what. And they actually respected me for it. Even, they, even if they didn't agree with me, they respected me. But again, I was guilty of being lukewarm and it made me sick. I made myself sick, just like uh, probably was making Jesus sick. But we do the same things. We want our comfort. We want our prosperity. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to be seen as intolerant. We don't want to be seen as bigoted. So instead of, of when things like homosexuality and abortion come up and reproductive rights and uh, sexuality and um, you know the way and, and all the things that that you know God is very clear about in the Bible when they come up in our culture and all in these things that are that are accepted by our culture when they come up a lot of times we Christians we will just be silent we'll just take the middle road because we don't want to rock the boat we don't want our friends to think we're religious fanatics or fundamentalists or judgmental so we'll just be quiet but remember that verse that Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. So if you are not willing to stand, there's, there's no middle ground with Jesus. If you are not promoting him, you are denying him. You can't stand in the middle. So do not deny God directly and do not deny God by your inaction. Because if you deny Jesus again before men, he will deny you before his father. And that's not a state that any Christian wants to be in. All right, let's wrap this up. It's pretty clear that this final church, the church age that we're currently in, the Laodicean age is in truly deplorable conditions. But their cowardice, avarice, and lukewarmness are actually an effect of their theology. It's not the cause. What is the cause? What causes the end of the church age? This is the last church. What happens at the end of the age? Because there's no more. There's no eighth church. So Laodicea is it. This is how the church ends. And again, the what causes the church age to end? I think it's a great question because it's pertinent to us. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, please subscribe to Faith by Reason. You can subscribe on YouTube and hit the notification bell to get these new videos or, and I prefer this, that you go to faithbyreason.net 
and subscribe there. Put your email into the All Right Navigation area, and that way you will uh, get anything new that's published as soon as it's published. And I will talk to you next week when we look at the end of the church age and the end of the time, the outline of Revelation where Jesus, where John writes down that Jesus tells John to write down things that you have seen, things which are, and things which shall be. Well, the things that are, things that are is the church. And after this church age, when it ends, we'll go to the things that shall be after. So we'll get into the future in, in Revelation chapter four. But next week, we will talk about how the church ends. And I will talk to you next week.